Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is Episode 70, How a Conservative Came to Support Single-Payer Healthcare. My guest, Joseph Q. Jarvis, MD, MSPH, received his medical and public health training at the University of Utah School of Medicine. His career includes time as a family doctor at a community health center, the state health officer for Nevada, a public health physician for state and federal agencies, a physician consultant with a national practice, and a specialist in occupational lung disease at a tertiary care center. Dr. Jarvis has seen American healthcare across the entire spectrum of care. 30 years ago, Dr. Jarvis came to the realization that American healthcare fails to deliver quality care at a reasonable price, and that Americans are suffering from society-wide health insecurity. Since then, he has done everything he could think of to help all Americans realize how our health system is failing us and what we can do about it. He shares his conclusions with anyone who will listen or read his book, The Purple World, Healing the Harm in American Healthcare. Dr. Joseph Jarvis, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. So I'd like to start with something that a reviewer of your book, The Purple World, said. Dr. Jarvis argues that the medical industry complex exerts a public policy vice on Congress, which allows insurance companies to transfer the growing price of care to patients. Medicine has been reduced to a business opportunity but one cannot maximize profits and optimize care. So what, in your experiences and observations, led you to that conclusion? When I was the state health officer for the state of Nevada, one of the tasks that the legislature gave to the state health division was to create a trauma center and a trauma system for the state of Nevada. Now, uh, that requires a regionalization of the care so that hospitals and doctors throughout the state would cooperate with each other and uh, make sure that wherever the trauma patient entered the system, he or she would get to the best place for care for that patient as soon as possible. So we came up with a series of regulations and a whole system-wide entity that required that there be a designation for the highest level trauma center called the trauma one center and then we opened the bid for all of the hospitals in the state to participate and and buy for that designation everyone else would then work at at their request all the other hospitals would acknowledge the trauma one center and do their role play their role according to what that uh, lead trauma center had in mind. So 
what I did know before we opened the bidding process was one of the hospitals in the state was consistently viewed as the best trauma hospital anywhere. It was down in Las Vegas. And one of the reasons I knew that was this was back in the era when Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States. And he was traveling to Nevada quite often because there was a U.S. Senate race going on at the time, and he was trying to support the incumbent, the Republicans. So come to Las Vegas and stump in favor of this uh, sitting United States senator. And every time he came to the state, his team, his advance team would come, and they would search out all of the things that might be needed during a presidential visit, including a place to take the president in case he needed promise. And they always chose that one hospital over all the other hospitals. So I knew it was pretty good, and I hoped that it was participate in the in the trauma system we were organizing. But when the bidding process was open, they simply did not agree to submit a bid. The one hospital in Las Vegas that did submit a bid was not nearly as well equipped, and when they were reviewed by an outside team to see if they actually met the criteria, they failed. So there we had a very embarrassing situation for the state of Nevada. It wanted to form a trauma system, but it had no hospital willing to serve as the lead center um, that could actually pass the review. Now, right around that time when we were in that stuck in that terrible situation, I happened to be visiting the hospital um, that had good trauma care in it, and I ran into the CEO of the hospital, and I asked him, why didn't you apply to be the lead trauma center? I think you could have passed the review. And his answer was very revealing. What he said was, State of Nevada licenses my facility for X number of beds. I think it was like 450 beds. We actually usually have 350 beds open and staff. When a patient comes to our emergency room, we look and see if the patient has any ability to pay for care if they need to be admitted. If they don't have the ability to pay, we tell the patient that we're at li our limit of staffing, 350 beds, and we defer the patient to some other hospital. If they have the ability to pay, then we call in a nurse, staff up another bed, and bring the patient into the hospital. He said, your trauma regulations required us, if we were the lead trauma center, to accept every patient regardless of ability to pay. And we are in the business of making money. First and foremost, we're a for-profit hospital, and I can't afford uh, the hit to my bottom line of being forced to admit non-paying patients. So that's why we didn't apply. And it suddenly dawned on me at that moment in stunning fashion that the for-profit motive was all about something other than actually taking care of patients and of a community. That's what I mean by it devolved the healthcare um, transaction into a business opportunity instead of actually caring for people. Well, that's very interesting. And I wish I could say that it's surprising, but it doesn't surprise me. This is an age-old problem. I have stumbled on a story from way back several hundred years ago that involved the English poet John Donne, who was one of the most well-known poet of his era. At the end of his life, he served as the Dean of St. Paul's, which is still the cathedral standing in London today. 
Uh, one of the things that's not well known about John Dunn was that his stepfather was a physician and a very well-regarded, highly renowned physician of that era. Uh, that, that his name was John Simenges. Uh, that, that was uh, John Dunn's stepfather. John Simenges was a member of the Royal Academy of Medicine, and he attended the royal family. Uh, and he was quite wealthy through his medical practice. And he had a lot of student doctors who worked with him, and he used to teach them, make your bargain with the patient while he is yet in pain. That's exactly what we continue to do in the United States to this day. We make our bargain with patients when they're in pain so that they're forced, they're over the barrel, they're forced to do everything possible financially and then some in order to get the care they need for themselves or their family, which is, of course, why health care costs are now the leading cause of bankruptcy in the United States. So what do you see as the solution to this problem? We have a, a system uh, where health care financing is largely from the taxpayer in the United States. American taxpayers pay higher healthcare taxes than do the citizens of any other country anywhere else in the world. We've got a $4 trillion health economy every year in the United States, and probably $3 trillion of that $4 trillion comes from taxes. That is, a, by itself, the $3 trillion is the largest healthcare expenditure anywhere on the globe for any nation on a per capita basis or on a percentage of the GDP basis. We need to take those public dollars and use them efficiently and buy with them high-quality care. And by paying for care efficiently and by paying for better quality care, we will reduce the amount of costs involved with health care. And our prices in the United States are ridiculously high. And we will be able to deliver care to every single citizen in our country of a higher quality with no cost at the point of service. So I'm what I'm arguing for is better care and care that is simpler, so it's more efficiently financed, and therefore the care will be less expensive, and it can be delivered universally with no point of service payment. There's only one kind of health policy that fits that, and that's called single-payer health care. Some people refer to this on a national basis as Medicare for All, which uh, is in the title of your podcast. Uh, Medicare for All is national single payer. But it's the goal. It's the goal to have every American have that experience. We can do this. We can afford it because we're already paying for it. I would like to broaden the conversation a bit. And from a previous conversation... I know that you classify yourself as a conservative. My experience has been that conservatives are generally against Medicare for All. I would be interested to have you discuss your political philosophy and how you came to support single-payer. Well, you just did that. But within that philosophy as a conservative, how can you support a single-payer health care system? A conservative, in my opinion, a real conservative, a traditional American conservative, has a set of values 
that are based on uh, the values in the Constitution and the values that the founders of this country followed from biblical precepts. Today's conservatives, members of the so-called conservative party, the Republican Party, have completely lost their mooring on traditional American conservatism. Some of those principles are expressed directly in the Bible. For instance, uh, Jesus of Nazareth taught his people that the very least among them who are sick need to be visited. And nations who fail to do that will find themselves on the left hand of God. Prophets throughout the Old Testament reiterated that same teaching. Jeremiah said, is there no balm in Gilead? Why is the health of my people not restored? Why are you, and Ezekiel said, why are you ruling us with force and harshness instead of taking care of my people? These are teachings that the Bible clearly articulates, and today's modern conservatives have totally forgotten those biblical moorings. I'm a conservative, and I rely on those people. I try to live them, and we should have a healthcare system that reflects them. Many, many, many of the hospitals created in this country were created by Christian organizations trying to live up to biblical principles, many of which have now been sold into for-profit status and totally unmoored from that principle. Healthcare should not be about business and profit. It should be about taking care of people, about expressing the love we have for one another through the care of each individual. Charity means and that's a biblical principle. Charity means that kind of looking out for each other. So that's first, in my mind, a conservative principle. Secondly, conservatives do not hate government. Conservatives embrace government and its role and function in our lives, including to promote the general welfare. That's a constitutional principle. It's just that the level of government is, sub is something that conservatives like to see debated, whether it should be a federal principally solution for the problem that we're dealing with or uh, something that states would handle better under the Constitution. So done directly as a federal-state partnership, it fits very well in the conservative view of government serving us, promote the general welfare, and uh, all the other things that are in the preamble of the Constitution. Third, conservatives are favor fiscal responsibility. They favor something that can be controlled so that it's not outgrowing its place in the in the overall gross domestic product. Healthcare costs have been rising faster than the gross domestic product for decades now. We uh, have a, a healthcare system cost now that's about 20% of the gross domestic product, and in that we are outstripping all other first world countries two to one most of whom are averaging around 10% of the gross domestic product on healthcare. Why that matters is because you can only have 100% of the gross domestic product. And if you're spending more and more of it on healthcare, you're spending less and less of it on other things that we also need. Conservatives are aware of that and are trying to keep it framed, uh, that is, fiscal constraints, in the proper framing. So, there are several reasons why conservatives should endure single payer. It's more fiscally restrained, it's more morally based, and it's more constitutionally placed within the framework of what the state and the federal government should share.
those are at least three of the reasons why I favor it. And I'll give you a final one, and that is a conservative all in favor of markets where market forces can be applied. But healthcare is not an arena where the prerequisites of a free market exist. For instance, a free market requires a buyer who can beware. The caveat in tour that's classically applied to market forces. Healthcare does not have buyers. It does not have shoppers. It does not have consumers. Healthcare has patients. And by definition, they are not able to take care of themselves, to fend for themselves, and to beware. Some of them are actually comatose and absolutely the opposite of aware. Second, in healthcare, we have sellers who are ethically responsible first and foremost for the care of their patients. In a market, we have sellers that are supposed to look out for their own interests and consider no other. They're supposed to make as much money as possible. That's what they're in the market to do. That's not a seller in healthcare. In fact, we don't have sellers in that regard in healthcare. We have people who are professionally duty-bound to help their patients, either as doctors or nurses or other kinds of practitioners. Third, in a market, the exchange or transaction between the buyer and the seller has no implications and no interest to anyone else. However, in healthcare, what a patient gets from the healthcare system, from a doctor and a nurse, actually has implications for everyone else in society. The tuberculosis patient who's actively spreading a contagious uh, bacteria needs proper treatment so the rest of us are protected from that exposure. The trauma patient needs trauma care immediately and quickly, must be sent through the cooperative process that I've already described to the right place so that the high, highly trained, highly skilled trauma team can stay in practice so that when you and I need it, next, the next patient up gets the team that's really skilled and at its best. So, uh, again, the transaction in healthcare is not anything like a market. Finally, in a market, price determines demand. The higher the price, the lower the demand. There's an inverse relationship between price and demand. And in healthcare, that's simply not true. People uh, do not buy an appendectomy because it's on sale or its price is low. Uh, people like myself do not have diabetes, have no need for insulin, and I don't care how low you price insulin, even if you gave it away, I won't want it. There's no demand that, you know, I won't have any demand for. Only people who have to be ill with diabetes who need insulin uh, will, will require the medication. And that puts them over a barrel so that if we pretend that a market exists, we allow the sellers of that very, uh, you know, important medication uh, to price it as high as they want to price it and price people out and allow them to die because they simply can't afford it. That is not a market operating. That's coercion in the worst sense of the word. So I'm a conservative. I believe in market forces where they can be applied, and healthcare is not one of those settings. Well, there's so much that you said there. But I think one of the most important points is that sometimes markets don't work. And I think there's an assumption that markets can solve every problem. And, as you pointed out, 
That's just not the case. That's exactly right. It is not the case. I first recognized this again when I was in Nevada as a state health officer. I arrived in Nevada just after finishing my training in Utah. These are two states that are contiguous. They both share the Great Basin, and they're alike in many, many respects. But in healthcare, they were very dissimilar. Utah had a highly developed healthcare system with trauma care, open heart surgery. Right before I arrived in Nevada, Utah had been the place where the first artificial heart had been transplanted, uh, for instance. Nevada had none of those resources. As I told you, it was just barely trying to figure out how to do trauma care. And yet, interestingly, I realized once I got to Nevada that the care was twice as expensive in hospitals in Nevada as, as they were in Utah. That's, that's a remarkable thing to discover. Highly skilled, highly technical services in Utah, much better prepared to deal with all of the breadth of problems that occur in American healthcare, much better prepared than Nevada, were cheaper. Why? Because high-quality healthcare costs less. That's why. And when you can't, when you focus only on the bottom line, on making a profit, you are firstly incentivized to provide mediocre care. For instance, as explained by the, the CEO of the hospital in Las Vegas, who refused to participate in the trauma search. Better care available there, but he didn't want to, he didn't want to get involved with it because it wasn't making as much money for him to do that. He was incentivized to do something else. Now, what I would like to know, especially given that you are conservative, and I haven't had much opportunity to talk to them about Medicare for All, but what suggestions or recommendations would you have to get a single-payer Medicare for All healthcare system in the U.S.? Number one, it's a, a very heavy political lift. Let's remember that it's first and foremost, a political problem to make this transition. Many people think that if we simply keep doing policy elaborations, uh, keep making observations about other systems internationally, in other words, just stay in the information transmission sort of mode and provide that information continuously to the American electorate, that somehow that's going to eventually evolve into uh, a single-payer system. And my response back to that is, no, actually, the way politics has evolved in the United States, very wealthy special interests have purchased the attention and time of Congress and all the state legislatures all across the country. I've experienced this personally as I've tried to lobby for change, these changes that are so necessary, both in Congress and in a variety of state legislatures. They simply do not attend to those of us who come only with facts and information, as important as those should be. We've got to play the political game. Right now, we're in a situation where Congress simply will not even consider, nor would the President of the United States sign a single-payer bill. It's just flat not the case that that would ever get through Congress. And even if it were, the White House has clearly said, President Biden has clearly said he would veto the bill. So we need an alternative political strategy other than waiting around for Medicare for All to be passed by Congress. And I suggest that if we start at the state level, where there already is a lot of political fomentation going on for single payer, for instance, in California, and in the 
state of Washington, uh, just two examples, that that's where our better place is right now, where we can actually make headway either on through the legislature or through ballot initiatives. They're possible at the state level, ballot initiatives are, but not not federal, not national. That's my suggestion. That is what I'm working on, and I'm actually creating with other activists a uh, political action committee, which we hope will generate grassroots interest because we want to attend to the people. We want patients to come first. We're going to be a, a bottom-up political action committee, and when we get enough funds, we're going to try to weigh in pick some political fights, and help some of these state initiatives get through. When enough states, maybe that's only one or two, actually make this transformation and start making demands on the federal government to work with the state, that will help change the way business is done in Washington, D.C. That's my suggestion. Let me ask a question. The federal government can run a deficit, and I would say that it has been shown historically that deficits don't necessarily matter or cause inflation in and of themselves. But most states have to balance their budgets. So given that if there's a medical crisis, like what happened with COVID, how do we ensure that the states can treat all the patients that need medical care if they have to balance their budgets? Very carefully, when I articulated the conservative principles that you asked me about, I very carefully said it's a partnership between the federal government and the state government. I am not intending in any way, shape, or form for the state government to become the financing source for single-payer transformation. I know, as everybody does, who pays attention to this, that the vast majority of tax monies that go into the healthcare system in the United States our federal tax money, and that the federal government has additional uh, advantages in terms of spending money into existence, as they say, that the state government never could have. Financing will always, financing of healthcare will always be a federal initiative and a federal responsibility. I'm just simply making the case that politically, we could start at the state level, and that has some advantages in terms of actually managing how the money is spent on a local basis because there are differences between the states. Uh, and the other thing to remember is, even though the states don't provide the lion's share of funding, they still provide a good chunk in, of healthcare funding, as do local governments. Some of the best-funded health plans that still exist in the United States are for public employees at the state and local level, in the school districts, in the sewer districts, et cetera. So we need to keep those public money in train uh, so that we keep all of the public funding bundled together so that a state may actually be able to solve the healthcare problems it is presented with. An example of that is in Utah, most of the population, and it's a huge chunk, probably approaching 90%, live in a small, relatively small space along what's called the Wasatch Front that goes from Ogden in the north about Provo in the south, Salt Lake City in the center. Everyone else lives in a vast, almost wilderness, certainly frontier sort of area around the state where lots and lots of visitors go because we in Utah have five very beautiful, highly regarded national parks. They're referred to here in Utah as the Mighty Five. 
We have lots of visitors to those parks, especially in the summer. In the winter, we have a lot of people come for the skiing industry, which, again, is some distance from the major medical centers of the Wasatch Front. we got to figure out how to care for all of us Utahns, some of whom live in very distant areas, and all of these visitors, do many of them go to the distant areas. That's a unique problem that we think we can fix, but we should have some say on the policy. It shouldn't actually be created in Washington. So I see setting a financial floor by saying these kinds of benefits are a minimum. You can't go below that. I mean, Medicare makes that promise to the people who are on it. We need to maintain those federal standards, um, and the financing will come from the federal government, but the state should be able to have a large say in how it's implemented. That's, 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 that's how I respond to your question. Well, that's very interesting. There's a lot there that would warrant further discussion, but I'm going to leave it there for now. Before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Yeah, I do believe, as a conservative, that I should be able to persuade people who are honestly conservative, meaning they remember where the conservative movement in the United States began, from Abraham Lincoln and from Grant, one of his successors, established the Department of Justice to protect the rights and interests of the newly freed African-American slaves. Teddy Roosevelt, who fought off the special interests at the turn of the century and first invented progressivism in the United States. Interesting to note that a conservative is the person who invented progressivism. Uh, and, and then finally, Eisenhower, who invoked his power to bring military uh, to protect the interests, again, of African-Americans who wanted something that the public was funding, public education, uh, and also created infrastructure. I think healthcare is more like the infrastructure uh, than it is anything else. Uh, it's infrastructure that everybody needs in, in their lives to preserve life, liberty, and happiness. That's a conservative value. I think what we conservatives need to remember is that historical, traditional, value-based conservatism. And let's, let's stop dealing with the special interests who just want to take our money from us, who want to rob our taxpayers and not provide any value in return. Uh, let's go back to our roots. Let's be true conservatives and support what really works fiscally, constitutionally, and morally. Thanks. Dr. Jarvis, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. You're welcome. I enjoyed it very much. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Remember to tell your family, friends, and colleagues about this podcast. Information about Medicare for All Explained can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.